be honest, a lot of that's for you. <laughs> um, story of my life. Hi, I'm Justin, uh, Dylan Stevens. Outside this room, just Justin Dillon. Let's keep it that way. Um, it's real. It is true. I, did, I, did, I didn't change my name. I just truncated it. Um, but uh, it is true that Jared and I are brothers, and it is true uh, that he's had this church for two and a half years and just decided to invite me, so <laughs> really good to be here, finally. Um, this week marks, uh, or this month marks a little bit of an anniversary for our family, our, our larger family. Uh, every, every three years, our family gets together and does a, a family reunion. Um, it's, it's more on my mother's side, or our mother's side. Um, and uh, it, it's, in, it's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And every three years, for as long as Jarrett and I can remember, we'll, we'll trek back and go there and, and realize that Jarrett and I... For, we actually come from cowboys, um, men with, with uh, love red meat and guns and God and, and, and Republican and awesome individuals, but, but always, always, always with guns. Um, and so Jared and I were always the, we've been called a number of things, the least or the most innocuous is probably California kids. Not sure what that meant. It meant a lot more when we got older and understand what they were saying. But every three years, we would go to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and spend time with our family. Which, which really, you know, the older we get, the more awesome we realize that truly is. But 18 years ago, um, on one of our many little treks away from the larger gathering, Jarrett and I took uh, our our fiancés at the time. We were both about to get married, and uh, we had an opportunity to go take a walk out in the hills. Um, outside the reunion, and um, we had a chance to reflect on our lives, things that we're going to be doing. We were asking, it wasn't we, Jared and Jeannie always ask the tough, formative life questions, so now I just kind of go, oh yeah, it would be great, man. Um, I don't really think about the future, we're artists. Um, but uh, Jared and Jeannie were asking, you know, thinking about our lives, and obviously, you know, we all have great plans for our lives, and I'll never forget the plans and the dreams that Jarrett and Jeannie had were to one day uh, co-lead a church in Chicago, in downtown Chicago. And, and here we are. It's pretty awesome. So you're part of, a big part of our family and our family's dreams. Um, you know, 18 years ago, uh, life looked a lot different. And we were pretty certain that anything that we planned to do would work, like easy. You know, you put in one, you get out one. Our calculus was very, very clean and distilled. And life doesn't work that way. Um, And sometimes those dreams take 16 years uh, to come to fruition. It's interesting because, you know, no matter how hard you try, the truth is, you're always searching for certainty in your lives. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And it's interesting that in our lives, Jared and I both chose careers with tons of certainty, ministry and music. And <laughs> so we were off to a great start. And I am a, uh, my background is music. Uh, I did that for most of my adult life. Um, at, at the end of the day, I think if I had to put a moniker on it, I'd, I'd call myself an artist. Um, I show up to things relatively on time, but I just don't think linear. 
um, as you're about to see over the next 30 minutes. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, being an artist is just being someone who wants everybody else to feel the way they do about something. You stand on stage, you stand in front of a canvas, or you stand behind a camera, and that's what you're doing. You're trying to get people to feel something through the device that you have, to feel the way you do. And if on top of that, you're a performer, then you're going to want people to show you that they feel the same way. You want, them, you want them to demonstrate that in some fashion, usually in the form of glorious praise. <laughs> um, but that's being an artist. And you know, about eight years ago, my life as an artist was um, disrupted uh, pretty severely. Uh, I was making a record in LA, and uh, I was out in the lobby because somebody else was doing their tracks. I was out in the lobby, and there was a, on, on, I'll never forget, on the coffee table, there was this magazine um, from New York Times, and it said, um, the new slave trade. It's like, that's some light reading. I'll pick that up. <laughs> and I started going through it about, you know, about eight, nine pages, and I'm learning <clears throat> for the first time in my life that there's over 27 million people living in slavery. And it just seemed like, I thought we wiped that out with like Vikings and rickets. How on earth can there be slavery in the world today? And I started reading the stories of these young girls who are being trafficked from Eastern Europe into Western Europe and, and, and into America. And they're being tricked and duped with these dubious agencies that are saying they'll get them work, preying upon their innocence and their need and desire to support their family and then putting them in these despicable, awful places like brothels. It just, it was, frankly, it was overwhelming like most things that are really terrible in life. And I have a little shelf that I'd built inside my mind for things that were really terrible that I couldn't do anything about. You know, I'm just going to put that on the shelf next to the Holocaust, civil rights, Darfur. These are all things that I just, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Well, a few months later, I had an opportunity to go play music in, in, in Russia. And of course, that sounds really awesome. We agreed to it. And it was a unique opportunity because they, they would drop you into this one area and leave you there for a week. And usually this area is a place where music doesn't typically go. It's not on the tour route of the Rolling Stones. You know, like a place just outside of Chechnya, which is where we went. If you've ever been to Kalmykia in the spring, it's lovely. Um, but what was interesting about this place is that they really hadn't ever had music or musicians come through, pop musicians come through. So we all realized as a band that very soon thereafter that this was the beginning of the end because they really actually had no frame of reference for what was good. So without deserving it, we were pretty great. Right out of the bat, like immediately we were the biggest thing to happen in Kalmykia. And you're taught to not believe the hype, but when, it's, when the hype's coming at you, you can't help. There's no translation barrier for hype. You just receive it. And um, you soon thereafter that music was, was, was behind me. But during the time that we were there, we got a great chance to, actually because we're staying in the same town, to get to know the people. And we'd hang out in the square at night. We talked to all the kids, and they'd tell us about their lives, and they would ask us about the United States, ask us questions, and there's all these girls saying, oh my gosh, we want to come to the United States. Do you know Justin Timberlake? I was like, yes, of course. My name's Justin. <laughs> all the Justins come together. Soon there's going to be another Justin. He's on his way up. He's going to be even more famous. 
It's the clan of Justin. Um, well, these girls were very excited about the West. And, and, and one night we got to meet a few girls. One girl in particular, her name is Vika, was telling us, well, I'm, I'm going to go to the United States, me and my friends. We're like, oh, that's great. What are you going to do? She's like, oh, we've got this opportunity to go work. I'm like, oh, man, that's really cool. Well, what do you mean you got this opportunity to do your work? Well, we're working with this agency, and they had us pay 2400 American ahead of time. And I'm like, wait a minute. Where are you going to work? Well, we don't know. They haven't really told us. Oh, where are you going to stay? Well, we don't know. Do you have your plane ticket? No. You see where I'm going? So very quickly I said, you know, why don't you bring me everything that you've got from this agency tomorrow, and I'd love to take a look at it after the show. And they brought it, and of course it was bogus. So we had to sit them down after the show and say, you know, Vika, friends, um, I'm 90% sure that you're about to be trafficked. Um, And I'm really sorry, because I know this feels very embarrassing to you, but this is, I'm 90% sure this is what's going to happen. I'll never forget her looking, into, looking me in the eyes and saying, I'll take my chances. In that place, my life was disrupted. How can someone prey upon someone who's so intelligent, so hopeful, and do it in broad daylight and take their money in the process? How can this be happening and no one's doing anything about it? So when I got home, I decided I'm going to do something about it. Now, I said yes to something that I had no idea I was saying yes to because I said yes with conditions like, yes, I'll do this much. I'll read some books and maybe do something about it. So I did. I went to Amazon.com, bought the first two books, read them. Oh my gosh. Called the two organizations that wrote the books and said, hey, I'm Justin. Not that Justin. I'm in San Francisco. Um, Clearly, I'm not famous or rich, but I want to help. What can I do? They both said raise money. Well, great. Gotcha. I'll be right back. Went out, did some shows, raised money from five, ten thousand $10,000, and call them back. I'm like, hey, guys, we did it. We're awesome. What else can I do? Mm, raise more money. <clears throat> okay, stop. Pause. Um, the best in me is not in how much money I can raise. You see, I'm an artist. I want people to feel the way I feel about something. So I'm going to insert myself into this in some small way to try to do just that. That's the best that I can offer you. Some people, the best they can offer is, is financing and, we, and funding things, and that is great. But for me, it's not what I can do. I can't bring fame or fortune to it, but I can bring my passion. And so I said yes to figuring out what that was, having no path, no clear pathway. Well, very soon... I started working my community in LA and New York and, ask, and sharing my passion with them and asked them to join me in doing some type of PSAs and whatnot. It ended up becoming a film. I'll put it up there for you, called Call and Response. Now, I had no idea how to make a film. Um, for the record, that's hard. Um, I, once the film was done, I felt like, you know, it's a film. It should go to movie theaters. Let's distribute a film to movie theaters. That's hard, too. Uh, Learn that. Uh, but all along the way, I was being pushed and pushed and pushed outside of my comfort zone, way outside of my comfort zone. And I realized that my life was shifting. And I knew very quickly that I needed to get some principles and some guidance and some guardrails because I didn't really know where I was going. And so I went back to an old verse that I'd read a million times before. I'm sure you've heard it. It's Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O humankind, what is good 
And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. All of these are active, not passive. They're requirements, not suggestions. And they're exhaustive, meaning they're about others. Now, why was this important to me? Well, I realized that very quickly in the space that I was getting into, I could lose myself just as easy I could lose myself in any other space. And I needed something to keep me in line. I needed something that was counterintuitive to everything else that was going on. And keep in mind, I was being put into places I didn't know how to operate in. I didn't know how to make a film. I didn't know how to distribute a film. And I didn't know how to work in the human rights community. All of this was fantastically new to me. So these principles were things that I decided, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how to do these things, all these different spaces I'm in, but I'm going to hold on to these. And everything is going to go through this lens. The one thing, the one thing that they are sure of is that they do not provide certainty for your life. Going back to Jarrett and I, when we started off our lives or started off our careers, certainty would have been nice. But God doesn't promise you certainty, at least not in things like this. When I think of the idea of to do justly, I've learned over the last few years that justice is disruption. And I've had to learn to embrace disruption. So when I read the words do justly, what goes through my mind is embrace disruption. Allow disruption to come into your life. The work that our organization does is to disrupt the system. A very calculated, well-oiled, highly motivated system of slavery where profits are, in the, are, are above $32 billion a year. This is a well-oiled machine. We want to disrupt it. We want to break it. Not talk it out, but to break it. And to do that, we have to be disruptive. But we also have to allow disruption to come into our lives. We have to think differently. We have to operate differently. To do justly, means that it will cost you something. To do justice and to do justly in your lives means that something of you might get spent and you might not get it back. Your time, your energy, your relationships. <coughs> justice requires something that we give. It's not a feeling. It's not something we brand an organization with. When I was a kid, coolest thing you can do is start a band. Now, coolest thing you can do is start a nonprofit. It's weird. It's awesome and weird. And that's my age speaking. But it's awesome. Justice isn't a brand. It's a disruption. And it's, it's chaotic. Um, Jarrett and I, when we were being raised, I, I've got a picture of our family. I love awkward family photos. Um, I mean, I could stay, I stay on awkward family photo sites for days because I'm just, I'm just writing backstories. So don't do that right now, if you could. Um, with this one, I'll, I'll email it to you if you want to write backstories later. But um, obviously, Jared's the cute one. Um, 
our family, and I would say not just our mom and dad, but really our entire family, were very protective of Jared and I. And they didn't want uncertainty in our lives. It was very loving, extremely loving. It's so beautiful. You want to order your kids' lives in a way so that bad things don't happen to them because your heart is in another human being. That's what parenting is. It is the scariest thing in the world. Your heart is now living in another human being with choices. And so you want to protect that in any way that you can. So you allow a little disruption in, okay, one season of football, but that's it. You want to protect. And when I became a father, I wanted the exact same thing for my son. I've got a picture of him because I brought him here with me. And uh, his name's Valentine. And uh, he, uh, he's a lot of fun. Uh, he's lot of, having a lot of fun with his cousins this weekend. So thank you for bringing us out. That's a real, that's a real blessing for him. But uh, Valentine understands chaos and disruption quite a bit. In fact, a few weeks, well, a few months ago, when I was going through a pretty difficult time and I was up a lot at night worrying about some, some, some decisions that I, I had to make, disruptive decisions, um, Valentine um, was having a bad night. We didn't realize that he was sick. And so he was crying a lot in bed. And so, I, you know, all of us are not asleep. So I told my wife, well, wife, well one of us should sleep. So you go downstairs, which I'm not, it's, that's how, how it is always. I'm super sacrificial that way. So I'm like, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you go downstairs and sleep and I'll just bring him in the bed with me and, and we'll tough it out. And tough it out we did. It was like yoga, like fan and foot, like all night. He was sleeping, I was, and he was just going through something. And about five in the morning, I fell asleep. And then <clears throat> at about six in the morning, I start hearing this voice in my ear. Dada. I'm like, yes. Dada. Clearly he wanted eye contact. You couldn't do this like, yes, son. He didn't, that was not going to be good enough. So, Dada. Yes. And I look him in the eyes and he's like, I smell chaos. <laughs> Six in the morning. He says, he's four. He says, I smell chaos. And he does this with his eyebrows. <laughs> now, I don't know about you. I can go back to sleep after a lot of things in my life, text and whatnot. I immediately tried to try to unpack that. You, you, smell, what, you smell chaos? Where? What, what? Are you being... Did an angel come to you? What are you doing? What does this mean? And why are you saying this in my life right now? And he's just smiling. And I realized that my son was telling me that it's okay to pursue the chaos. It's okay to pursue the disruption. He's loved and protected. And he's telling me it's all right to go out there and take these things in. Because the truth is, at that moment, with what I was going through with our work, I didn't want to embrace the disruption. I was scared to. It was one of those points. And that's another thing about a life of faith is one of the things that you can be certain of is disruption doesn't come just once. It'll keep coming. And how you say yes and how you negotiate with it, with the Lord, will determine how deep and wide the experience of your life is. And so I said, I will smell that chaos with you, son. <laughs> and I did. do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. When I thought years ago what mercy was, I honestly felt that it was a feeling. I just said I felt it was a feeling. 
I thought it was a feeling. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's mercy. Uh, it's a hug. It's a bear with a rose on a hospital bed. That's mercy. <laughs> I can live with that. I can negotiate with that. I can control that. I can have certainty with that. That's easy. Mercy. But God here is saying, love, love mercy. Be affectionate with it. And when you are merciful, it means that you're giving something to someone that they very likely cannot give back to you. So it is a fantastic challenge. It is a fantastic investment to show mercy, to allow disruption into your life, and then to show mercy. One of my heroes in the work that I do is this woman named Alice Harris. Uh, She lived a long time ago, over 100 years ago. She was an American missionary who went to a small emerging colonial country called the Congo. It's uh, down in the southwestern part of, um, it's landlocked, but a small part of it breaks out into the Pacific, or the Atlantic, excuse me. And um, it was owned at that time by a guy from Brussels, a king named King Leopold. Now, this is late 1800s, early 1900s. This is about the time when pretty much all of Africa, Africa has been colonized, right? So here's this very, very rich country and very, very rich king who was really sad because he didn't have his own colony like all the other European countries did, and he wanted one. So he did his best to go out and find one, and he found one in, in, in the Congo. And he started setting up his empire, which at that time was an extractives industry, Bicycles and automobiles were just coming on, uh, on the scene, and rubber was a huge commodity, and you can source rubber from that part of Africa. So he was building an incredible rubber industry out of the Congo. Well, what's interesting is the way that he did it was through, in fact, slave labor. At a time when the Emancipation Proclamation had just been passed, when it had been almost 75 years since the end of the British slave trade, somebody under the scope of the rest of the world was able to start up a slave trade anew. And over the 10 years of his extractives industry, he wiped out half of the population, 10 million people. Brutal. And here's this American missionary and her husband living in the middle of it, having no idea what was happening. See, that's the interesting thing about justice. It's a lens to which you look at the world. And if you don't allow your lens to get disrupted, you might not catch it. So Alice had people who would work on her farm and around her and um, out in the fields. And one day a man came to, to her porch and wanted to share something with her. I've got a picture of it. This man brought a bag with him and he sat down on her porch and said, I want to show you something. He emptied out the contents of the bag. You see those contents there. Those are the hands and feet of his daughter. You see, the Belgian army was allowed only one bullet per person. See, the king was so cheap that if you shot someone, you had to prove that you shot it because he didn't want you taking your gun going out and shooting game and wild animals. So you had to shoot. You had to prove that this person was dead. Well, the army was so sick that they still wanted to shoot game, so they'd go out and shoot game anyway and then go hack off the hands of living individuals. This man showed it to Alice. She had a defining moment in her life. Her life was disrupted. Was she going to show mercy and take a risk? Or would she walk away? Mercy 
is risk-taking. Showing mercy is taking risks. So she made a very binary decision at that moment. She went and got this new possession that she had. Not a lot of people had them at the time. It's called a camera. She shot this picture. And as a woman in Africa in the late 1800s, she went out and started taking that camera and started doing some of the, the earliest investigative journalism we've ever known. And then she decided to go on the road with it. And she took a magic lantern show all around the United States and started showing people. And she'd show members of Congress. And pretty soon she was showing members of Parliament. And within 10 years, King Leopold's empire was shut down because of one little woman who allowed a disruption to come into her life. She took a risk and showed mercy and saved millions and millions of lives. She's a hero of mine. And taking risks is something that unfortunately, or fortunately, you will be faced with in your life. You know, a few years ago, uh, the federal government came to our organization and said, we want to start something called Slavery Footprint. It was actually the State Department who came to us. They said, we'd love to start something called Slavery Footprint. I'm like, wow, that sounds really cool. What is it? They're like, well, we don't know. We're kind of hoping you tell us. I'm like, well, okay. Uh, what is it you want to do with it? Well, we, we want to give consumers a way to understand how their lives connect to the issue. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like, like what? They're like, well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, okay. Um, pause. Uh, I'm an artist. <laughs> and I hate bummer calculators. I don't know my carbon footprint. I live in Berkeley. I don't know my carbon footprint. I'm a little bit of an odd bird. I just don't feel like spreading around bad news. So here's the way I would do it. If you let me do this in a way that shares how I feel and lets other people feel the same way and feel participation in it, then I'm in. They said yes, and it was an awesome partnership. So we, pulled, we poured into it, me and a couple other people, that was all our organization was. We built an algorithm with economists and statisticians. We built a way to determine the likely number of slaves that it takes to make any given product, a bottle of water, a smartphone, a t-shirt. And then we built an interface that people can go to. And the front of the interface, I think we'll have it up here on the screen, the front of slavery footprint says, do you want to know how many slaves work for you? I'm sure you all woke up this morning asking that question. We knew that asking this question was going to be disruptive. But for us, the risk was worth taking. Because if people, you know, Maya Angelou says, people don't remember what you told them, but they remember how you made them feel. And if our job isn't to tell people anything. It's to invite them in to participate in feeling the same things we feel. And if we can do that through Slavery Footprint, we will. And we took a chance on a government contract, on a government grant to do something like that. Well, we thought it was going really good. And we got a big launch date. It was going to be on the 149th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation at Bill Clinton's annual meeting. It was looking amazing. Secretary Clinton was going to talk about it. All this great stuff. It's like, this like three people in my office. That's all we were. Um, this incredible opportunity for, for our organization. And I got asked to go do a documentary with CNN in Haiti. And so I was doing that and we were getting ready to launch. And I'll never forget walking through one of the tent cities with the, with, the, with the camera crew. And I get this phone call. It says, Justin, it's the State Department. Cool, how's it going, guys? Uh, bad news. Congress hates your idea. In fact, they've decided to stop all funding for all programs because of this idea. We have to fix it. Stop all programs for aftercare, 
for police training, big stuff, tens of millions of dollars to help victims and survivors of human trafficking. And they were going to stop it because of a website because it looked like it was anti-business. And we pulled back and said, you know, there's something bigger happening here. We need to push through, hold together, and take a risk together. This is something that we believe in, and we're not going to change the question. We're not going to change the way we do this. We pushed through, we pulled some strings, and we got it launched on the 149th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation with the promise that by the 150th anniversary, a year later, we would get 150,000 people to use slavery footprint. We had that in one week from all over the world. It ended up becoming the number one story in France, in Germany, in Brazil, picked up by every news agency, and ended up winning most of the design awards around the world because we asked a bold question. People want to know. They want to be invited in, but that takes risk. What was interesting is the next year on the 150th anniversary, President Obama was on stage talking, at the same stage, talking about slavery footprints. So what was incredibly risky one year was the new normal the next. And I say that as an encouragement, that the risk that you take can change the paradigm of your lives and the lives of those around you. Sometimes life isn't going the way you want it to. Not, it's not going right in work. It's not going right in your relationships. It takes risk to push in and to show mercy at the expense. Risk to yourself, not risk to others. Very different. Risk to yourself about your own gain for comfort and acquisition in order to change the lives of others. We're so grateful that it worked out that way because it doesn't always. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Reverend Martin Luther King said, I am not who I'm supposed to be until you are who you're supposed to be. The reality is our lives are enmeshed with others. And now, because we live in a global village, our lives are enmeshed with others around the world. That's a story we want to tell with Slavery Footprint. We want to tell people that the small pivots and changes in your life can, can have this compounded effect all around the world. I've seen it with my own eyes. We find ourselves by giving ourselves away. We're taught to be strong, to overcome, and protect ourselves. But the reality is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly means that we must be vulnerable to those around us. Again, not the most offensive position. Not the way to take all and get all and get ahead. God is actually requiring us to be vulnerable. And a few months ago, I hit probably one of the biggest struggles of my career, which is why I was stressed out and my son said to smell chaos with him. Because our organization had to make a decision about how we were going to manage and approach this issue. We'd just gone to Ghana and we, 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 did, we had decided to open up a new project inside of Ghana where we're going to help little boys who are being trafficked out of villages, boys my son's age, by the way being trafficked out of villages and forced to work 17 hours a day on boats, never to go back home. Most of them die. Um, they're only given a subsistence, and they're, they're, they're beaten regularly. Awful. And we decided to go out on the lake and investigate this for ourselves. And I want to just show you quickly a clip of, uh, of what I'm talking about. So we chartered a boat and started tracking down any fishing boats with children on them. Like this one. That's Ebenezer. He's seven. 
While Stephen tries to comfort the little boy, his master argues with us why it's okay to force Ebenezer to work. I'm not very, I'm not very. I will go very hungry if you go to school. <laughs> That's his argument for keeping him out here. Throughout all of this, a five-year-old boy, exhausted from the night's work, never wakes up. These boys are forced deep underneath the water to untie nets and to force out large fish. What's the biggest fish that you were trying to catch? Yes, and the stomach. Yes. On that boat, as I was arguing with that master, he finally got fed up with me and said, fine, take the five-year-old, he's of no use to me. That did it for me. I was no longer somebody making films, making websites. This is what we were doing. And to be honest with you, doing human rights work and doing inner work, you can become a little dead inside. You don't know it. But to walk humbly inside the work that we're doing requires a level of vulnerability. It's, it will wreck you to have someone offer you a five-year-old. So I came back home and told my staff, we're going to be vulnerable with how we help these kids. And they said, well, what do you mean? It's like, we're not going to do status quo. We're going to tell the truth. It is messy and it is chaotic. Getting these kids out of slavery in the lake is a mess. It is expensive. It is difficult. It's not just going cowboy and rescue them. It doesn't work that way. It takes time and it takes money. And we're not going to candy coat that for the people that support us. We're going to be vulnerable to these children, <clears throat> and we're going to be vulnerable to those that we're asking to help them, because we're going to tell the truth, the amount of time and the amount of money it takes. And we all knew that that's not the way you do fundraising or start projects on the ground. You make it seem transactional, easy, simple, click a button, cost me nothing. Don't ask me to think. Don't ask me to really, really, really care. Just give me the feeling of caring. Those are the rules of fundraising, the carnal rules. But that's not who I wanted us to be. And the truth is, it's not who our staff wanted to be. So we said, fine. We're going to do something punk rock. <laughs> we're not going to rescue 500 kids. We're going to rescue five. All the way. From that boat to school, we're going to rescue these children all the way. And I don't know if we've got a picture of some of these kids, what it looks like when they're rescued. In school, we got them too. That is what freedom looks like. Five months later. That is the story we want to tell. It's a full and complete story and it has a narrative arc. But to be vulnerable to those we're trying to help and vulnerable to those that we're trying to get to involve ourselves. So we created a fundraiser online. We told the entire story. We said it costs about $6,000 per kid. And we were wringing our hands like, nobody's going to do that because most people donate at like $5, $10. Oh my gosh, this isn't going to work. Well, people didn't just rescue five kids. They rescued six in 40 days. And we tried to cut off the fundraiser at that point, but people just kept giving. Over 500 people gave because we told them the truth. We told them that $25 does matter, but here's how it doesn't. And it changed our paradigm. It changed the way that we look at our work, mostly because 
We were being vulnerable to them and saying, we're going to tell you the truth. We're not just going to do business as usual. Disruption and taking risks and being vulnerable are absolutely necessary to our lives. And I've shared with you some about some of how that works with me and how Micah 6-8 works for me. But I want to tell you that it works. In fact, I don't want to tell you. God wants to tell you. There's a verse in, in Jeremiah, excuse me, in Isaiah, Isaiah 58. I'm just going to paraphrase and read it for you. This is the kind of fast that I'm after. To break chains of injustice. To get rid of exploitation in the workplace. And to free the oppressed. Do this and lights will turn on for you. Your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. And the God of glory will secure your passage. In parentheses, certainty. That is the certainty that you're promised through Micah 6.8. The only certain thing that you can have around disruption is that it will come. What will you do? Where will you say yes? Disruption can come in all forms. It doesn't come in the form of a movie or human rights work. It can come in the form of, of how you're handling relationships at work or at home. How you're handling big decisions. Do you feel, do you have one of those crosshairs moment where things came together and you're like, man, I couldn't have ever put those two things, but they're there. I don't know. I can rationalize it and go, maybe it's not going to work. Or maybe I should say yes a little and push into it and see what that is. Now, I'm an artist. I know that there are people who are junkies for chaos and disruption. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those things that pull at your heart and are asking you to give it some attention. All I'm asking you to do is to say yes. All I'm asking you to do tomorrow morning is to wake up and say, I smell chaos. Thanks.